Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Started a series last week called Assurance. I want to journey over the next few weeks through the book of 1 John. 1 John. And uh, the book of 1 John is one of my favorites because it's all about assurance. Everybody say assurance. John wrote this. John was, as he referred to himself in his gospel, the beloved disciple. He's one of the closest disciples to Jesus. And John obviously cares about assurance because he deals with this subject a lot. He doesn't just deal with it in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but he deals with it in his gospel as well. It's a big deal to him. He, he, He deals and covers things like how can you know for sure you are saved? If you are new to the Christian faith, that means you're at peace with God. How can you know for sure you are not an enemy of God, but you are at peace with Almighty God? He, he deals with things of how you can know what you believe is true. In a 21st century world dominated by relativism, we need to know that what we know really is true. First John deals with this. He covers subjects of how we can be assured of God's love in our life, how we can be assured of God's control of our life, how we can be assured of God's sovereignty in our life. And then he covers a subject of how to maintain that certainty in the face of disappointment, in the face of disillusionment, in the face of opposition, and in the face of hardship that all of us face. I want to be honest with you here from the outset of this series. There are things, and these are things I should say, that I've struggled with for a lot of my Christian life. For one, how do we know for sure that we are saved? How do we know for sure we are saved? 11 years of Christian ministry, the number one question, above and beyond, heads and tails, above everything else, or head and shoulders, I should say, above everything else, is how do I know God's will for my life? That's been above and beyond every other question. Number two question that I've received, more so than anything else, and particularly with people eat up with doubt, condemnation, self-fractured cycles, how can I for sure know that I'm saved? Pastor Craig, how can I for sure know that? For me, when I first got born again, it was kind of similar. I didn't have... Many people that took great delight in that early few years of teaching to me the assurance of salvation. So I told you before, if there were a Guinness Book of World Record for the amount of time someone's prayed the center of prayer, I'm pretty sure I'd hold it. And then being in student ministry 11 years, I'm pretty sure if there's a pastor that's prayed with the same kid in an altar, the sinner's prayer, the amount of times, I'd probably hold that record too. You can imagine, week after week, a man, a young man falls into sin, a young woman falls into sin. I'm pretty sure I've been saved once in every denomination. Every youth conference I've ever been to, if we're, at the, if we're at the campfire and they tell you to throw in a stick after you pray the prayer, I'm going to throw the stick in. By God, I'll get a hatchet and cut down a tree and throw the tree in the fire if I need to. Because I don't want to invalidate the prayer. But this is the reality. People live eaten up with a lack of assurance. I've been wanting to do this series for a long time, and I never felt released. I'm feeling it today. I'm telling you, I'm feeling it. So you better, better get on the edge of your seat, all right? I'm feeling it. Assurance, what it means to be assured with great faith of your position in Jesus Christ. This is what 1 John deals with. By the time I graduated high school, I probably prayed the sinner's prayer, no joke, about 5,000 times. Honestly, it gets a little embarrassing, right? You walk every aisle in the church, you know, it's like, you know, at some point, I got baptized three times, y'all. Got baptized, in, and that's not even being infant baptized. I got baptized when I was eight, got baptized when I was 18, got baptized in the Jordan River. If I would have been in my church any longer, they'd give me a baptismal locker in the back, you know, my name on it. Anytime baptism comes up, you know. But, but really, I, I, that's me. I, I, in my early years, I'm thinking, how do I know for sure I'm saved? 
I want to know. That's not the kind of thing you want to be wrong on, by the way, right? That's the one thing you want to get into our attorney and be like, oh, I kind of missed that foundation. No, no, no. So I wanted to do this series, and I want to do this series because, listen to me, there are a lot of people who, like me, want to know they are saved, are saved and they can't seem to figure it out. If I could put language to your mental capacity, let me do it again. You don't have to admit it, but let me just do it for a minute. But what, no matter how many times I prayed the prayer, how can I know? Why can't I find the assurance of salvation? Did I get the prayer right? Was I sorry enough for my sin? I looked at him. He cried when he got saved, but I didn't cry when I got saved. Why is he emotional? Not emotional. What's going on? Why does that person go to the altar? But I didn't have the boldness to go to the altar. I, 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 was, I, was I feel bad enough about sin? Did I know enough about word of righteousness at that time to know that I was really saved? Did I, did I have enough uh, understanding of grace and mercy to understand that his grace and mercy were uh, uh, effective enough to say? So we live. And all of this, do I understand enough? And the doubts come back. No matter how much you want the doubts to leave, they keep coming back. Was I emotional enough? Was I not? Now, on the other hand, Scripture tells us that there are a lot of people who've prayed a prayer to receive Jesus, and they consequently think they're going to heaven because they prayed that prayer, but they are tragically mistaken. They will bust hell wide open. Jesus is very clear about that. I, the latest stat I can give you is 2011, but Barna, who is a, a church curator, he's a He's a research missiologist, if you will. He's a research statistician, technician. Barna and the whole company, they, they, they said in 2011 that 50% of Americans say they've prayed some kind of sinner's prayer. 50% of Americans. We're right now at about 315 million. So put, put about 160 you know, million people have committed in saying they've prayed the sinner's prayer. Even though half of that 50%, so 50% of that 50%, have no regular presence of any kind in church and they have lifestyles and worldviews that are in no way different from those outside the Christian faith. Now, when these people in our nation hear that you need Jesus to be saved, they think, oh, been there, done that. Already prayed the prayer. Got it written in the front of my Bible. My grandma was there, and there's tear stains on my pages. I remember signing the card and the altar. I was taken to a counseling room, which when I don't know when we started that, but remember those counseling rooms? You come to the altar, and they take you to another room, right? Just kind of awkward, weird, like falling in a straight line, you know. But I went to the other room, and, and I got it written down on a card. And, man, I, it, was, it was meaningful for me. And what happens is those people become immune to the talk about being born again. So when you say be born again, they're like, oh, already been there, done that. And the hardest people to reach in our nation are people who are inoculated because they prayed to ask Jesus in their heart. That's the hardest people to reach. The people who pray to ask Jesus in their heart. The people who pray to say, you know what? I want to, I'm good, I prayed the prayer. And Matthew 7, before you think you can call me a heretic, Matthew 7 is the one who says that Jesus is the one who says this. So Matthew 7, he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, he says, there's a large group that will come to me in the last day, and they'll say, Lord, Lord. That means they prayed the prayer. They confessed him as Lord. They said, Lord, Lord. And he turns them away with an awful response. He says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And most of those people, church, will have prayed a prayer. Many of them are going to an eternity confident of a salvation that they actually don't possess. So I thought, how can we spend five weeks in a series called Assurance and telling you about the marks of assurance without first labeling and clearly communicating what are the false marks of assurance? So I want to give to you the false marks of assurance. First of all, honestly, as your pastor, I wonder if a lot of people are not in this group because he's describing church people. Do you understand he's not describing Woodstock? He's not describing people who are not in church today. He's describing people who are in church today. We got that, right? That's who Jesus is, is talking about here. He's talking about people who are in church. And he says, these are illegitimate reasons for assurance. Number one, they prayed a prayer. They prayed a prayer. They prayed a prayer. They asked Jesus into their hearts. 
said they'll depart from me. Here's a second reason that's a false, illegitimate reason for assurance. is that's ministry and religious activity. Because these people in Matthew 7 were active in their churches, y'all. These people went on mission trips. These people volunteered in the kids' ministry. These people were active in their own church's prayer ministry. Now, you know you cream of the crop when you come in on a Tuesday night prayer meeting. Right? Like, if, 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 if you're in the church and there's a demon and a dude, and they say, send so-and-so to that dude, you are not playing JV. You are varsity letterman. Right? And he says, these varsity people are the ones that he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Here's another reason it's a false assurance. People say, well, I'm moral. These people obviously thought they were moral. Or here's another false assurance, the fact that you feel guilty about your sin. Did you know feeling guilty about your sin doesn't mean you're saved? What do you mean, Craig? Yeah, lots of people who aren't Christians feel guilty about their sin. That's why the most multi-billion dollar industry in our nation is called psychology, and it's built on how to deal with people who can't get rid of their guilt. I mean, they're saved. They're just trying to find ways to cope with guilt. Well, it's feeling bad about your sin. No, guess who felt really bad about himself and his sin? Judas, and he went out and hung himself, and he didn't make it to heaven. His name is not in the 12 foundation stones of downtown New Jerusalem. So feeling bad about your sin is certainly, remorse is certainly not a sign of assurance of salvation. So why are we doing this series? We're doing this series because I want people to identify the marks of someone who's truly saved. And and follow with me. Here's, Here's my goal in one sentence today. I want to comfort those who are unnecessarily troubled and I want to trouble those who are unjustifiably comforted. Y'all going to be quiet on me. Y'all, this second gathering is always quiet. It's okay. I'm just going to preach to myself for a minute. I want to, for the next few moments, comfort those who are unjustifiably, com- tr- or unnecessarily troubled, I should say, and trouble those who are unjustifiably comforted. The gist of this series is this. You're not saved because you prayed a prayer. You're not saved because you prayed a magical prayer. God saves us when we repent and believe the gospel. What do you mean, Craig? You can express repentance and faith in a prayer, but it's not the prayer itself that saves. You understand this? You're not saved because you pray. It's the repentance and belief behind the prayer that lays hold of salvation. And listen, it's possible to repent and believe without praying the prayer. And it's also possible to pray the prayer without repenting and believing. So I encourage you in this series to understand true repentance and belief and stop asking Jesus into your heart and start resting in the promises of the gospel. Like I asked my son last night laying down, what are you preaching on today? Uh, What I'm preaching on, son, is to stop asking Jesus into your heart. Well, Dad, that sounds like a horrible idea. Why would you tell people to do that? Because, son, it's time for you to start understanding. Jesus never asked for us to ask him into our heart. He asked for us to repent and believe his gospel. That's what the Bible says. Not pray a prayer. Not come to an altar. Not write a card. Repent and believe. That's what Jesus said. Repent and believe the gospel. So I'm going to preach through 1 John because 1 John is the whole point of how you gain assurance that you know God. How you gain assurance that he's real. How you gain assurance that he loves you. How you gain assurance that you're walking with him. How you gain assurance that your encounter with God when you were 8 years old is saving. It's transformative. So what I want to do is start with 1 John chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, go there with me. I'm going to read verses 13 through 18 today. 
1 John chapter 5, please follow with me. Let's jump on Delta. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go 30,000 feet over the book. I want us to look at the book today, all five chapters, with a summary statement of 1 John 5. 1 John 5, 13 through 18, summarizes the whole chapters in six verses. We want to fly over it. We want to get a 30,000 foot, foot view, and then what we're going to do is we're going to drop out of the plane a few little spots, and we're going to fall down on different parts of 1 John to figure out what he says are the true marks of assurance, and then... Two weeks from now, I will preach back-to-back weeks in the last two weeks of the series, and we'll flesh out some of the things that we're going to start or introduce today. That's the goal. That's the objective. So you say, Craig, what is the objective? We're going to start with the first, the last chapter, 1 John, and here's how John summarizes the whole book. We're going to ask two questions. Number one, does God really want us to know for sure that we are saved? Does God really want us to know for sure we are saved? Some people would say, No. God doesn't want us to know we are to stand with him because that's a way of God keeping us in line. Did you know I've talked to a lot of people who believe this? They think God motivates us to good behavior by threatening us with hell. Like if you, if you lose the threat, Pastor Craig, you tell people in the church that they got assurance, then what happens is they'll act however they want. It's like dangling a carrot, carrot in front of us. Like God's like, you better act right or you won't get heaven. I'll throw your soul into hell. You don't say that, but that's what you believe. That's what you believe. Like, or if you guarantee someone job security that they can't be fired, they're not going to fill out those TPS reports. If they got job security, they'll start acting lazy. They'll call in sick every other day. So some people think if, if God shows us assurance, then we're going to act morally lazy. We're just going to begin to have a license to sin. People think if, if someone has the assurance of salvation, they're going to get lazy. So does God even want us to know? That's the first question. And if God does want us to know, here's the second question. How can we know we are saved? If God does want us to know, how can we know we are saved? So number one, does God even want us to know for sure we are saved? Would you say it with me? Does God even want us to know that we are saved? Well, verse 13, look what the Bible says. He says, I write these things to you, John said to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may. Come on, everybody's got in front of them. That you may. That you may, you may know you have eternal life. The answer to question number one is a resounding yes. God wants you to know that you are saved. Here's two reasons why. Number one, he loves you. God loves you. God loves you. When you love someone, you want them to know that you love them. When you love someone, you want them to feel secure in how they love you. You love them. You want them to feel secure in your estimation of who they are. He loves you. God wants you to know, number two, the only way you and me, you and me will ever develop real love for God is when we are sure of the love of God for us. Let me say it this way. Real love only grows in the soil of security. When you make someone behave by threatening them, you coerce their behavior, but you never captivate their hearts. God is not interested in coercing you into good behavior. God, in fact, doesn't even care about your behavior in the beginning. God wants to win your heart, and he can't win your heart until you know that he absolutely loves you. So real love for God only grows in the soul of security of God's love for you. In other words, let me say it another way. God's not after coercing your behavior. Love for God in you grows from the assurance of the love of God for you. That's good enough to write down. 
Okay, that's, that's really it. Now, what I'm going to do this whole message is say that truth about a thousand different ways until it hits home. Okay? Assurance or the growth of God, love for God, developing in me, developing in my life, only comes from the assurance of God's love for me. In John's other book, The Gospel of John, John recounts a couple of analogies where Jesus shared with his disciples how he felt about them before he left the earth. And he, y'all, listen, he communicates assurance to them in the most tenderest of terms. I know I love John's gospel. I want to give you two of the tenderest terms Jesus used to describe us. The first thing is this. To describe our assurance, he calls us, we, as his beloved children. We are his beloved children. We are his beloved children. What does that mean? John 14, verse 18. This is the first one. This is Jesus as a loving father. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Y'all, a good father does not want his kids wondering whether or not he loves them, does he? Does a good father want his kids to wonder whether or not he's committed to them? No. A good father does not want his kids pontificating on whether or not his love for them is consistent. Dads, you don't want your kids in doubt of your love for them, do you? When I go away on a trip, I don't go too many times, but when I go away on a trip, I don't go up to my three kids and say, hey, kiddos, come here. Daddy's going to be back soon. Daddy's going to come back for you, and I'll have a present. Or maybe I won't, because maybe I'm not really your daddy at all. And maybe I have another family in Tennessee, and I'm having an affair with your mom. And if you would, I want you to sit on the back deck and just sit there and wait, see if I come back. I might return from this trip with a gift for you. I might return not at all. Just sit around and think about that a while and let that compel you to become better Mossgrove children. Would that work? Where do we get that, fathers? Our Heavenly Father. Do you think He wants you to think that He's up in heaven, not able to come back and get you? Oh, just pontificate that and see if your love for me grows, church. He says, you are my beloved children, I will come back to you, and I will be your reward. I'm coming back for you. I'll go to prepare a place for you, and I will come back to you, and I will take you where I am. That's amazing. Because if I said that to my kids, you think that would make them love me more? No, no, here's what it would do. It would not produce love and loyalty, Taylor. What it would do is it would produce fear-based obedience. But listen to me. Oh, good. Parents, you better write this down. Here it comes. It's the best thing I can give you today. It's only a matter of a few years before fear-based obedience turns to father-loathing rebellion. Fear-based obedience as a young child, when they get old enough to realize that their dad is not committed to them, will then begin to loathe and rebel against their daddy. And although you thought they were obedient, no, there was a thin veneer of obedience underneath it with full of doubt self-hatred and condemnation because they don't know that their dad's love for them is committed to them. And this is how a lot of people live their life. If, if, if I don't want my children feeling like orphans, would God, who's the best father, want us to fear that we might be orphans? The answer is no. Here's the second thing he calls us. Not just beloved children. He says we are his betrothed bride. Same text, John 14, 1 through 3. Same text, we are his betrothed bride. In the same conversation, Jesus compared his disciples to a betrothed bride. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is wedding language, y'all. 
Just like a man assures his fiancée that he loves her and he's coming back for her, Jesus told his disciples that he was for sure coming back for them. That's wedding language. When my wife and I got engaged, 2006, September, she was a student at Lee University. I was as well. One of the hardest things for us to do in our dating days was to say goodbye when I did long internships in the summer. I'd go eight weeks, I'd go 12 weeks. Went to Louisiana one summer. I went to, uh, to Georgia one summer. And the hardest thing for us is to return to our prospective homes and endure that time apart. The last thing I would have wanted her to believe when she was by herself was if I really loved her or not. So the last thing I would want her to doubt. If she doubted that, she might be open to the advances of other suitors. And because she is so fine, she worked at an after-school program called BCU at a church called North Cleveland, which we would later serve at. And on occasion, a dude walked her out to her car after, after daycare, after school care, and he wanted her to break up with me and take him on. I'll, I'll punch him in the throat till his Adam's apple can't breathe. I'll Liam Neeson, his Adam's apple, pull a taking on that dude's neck, right? But he, he wanted her to leave to come for her. So, so catch this. Last thing I want her to realize is that I love her. So throughout our engagement, I assured her repeatedly, I only love you. I'm going to marry you. Nothing's going to stop me from marrying you. And I put a big old fat diamond ring on that left finger to prove it, baby. And she knew as long as I didn't come back that she'd keep that rock. So you know what I'm saying? I proved that thing. I've, I've worked on yard work for 14 and a half years just to pay, a, pay for that diamond, right? I mean, it was a lot of yard work. You see, assurance gave her not only peace, that's what I wanted her to have, but assurance gave her the strength. She wasn't interested in the attention of other guys because she had already the awesome sauce in me. Right? It was the strength of her assurance with me that gave her ability to say no to the other advances of someone else. Ding, 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 ding. That's how God works with us. He knows you have no ability to say no to sin and the temptation of the world until you are assured that he is betrothed to you. You have no ability to say no to the onset of other suitors for your heart until you know he's put a ring on your finger. Now you have peace and strength to say no to other suitors because I one day am about to be married to King Jesus. I'm betrothed as his bride. I am his beloved child. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's the gospel secret. If you'll let this move on your mind and settle on your heart, it will change your life. You ready? Assurance in the gospel has a greater power to produce virtue and love in our hearts than the threats of the law could ever do. That's the gospel secret. The threats of the law, don't do this, son. Don't do that, daughter. If you do it, you're going to be grounded. Don't do this. God hates it. The threats of the law can coerce behavior, but it cannot captivate the hearts. And it cannot captivate the emotions. And it cannot captivate the affections. The established um, church of Martin Luther's day, Martin Luther Reformer, Protestant Reformation, 1500. Martin Luther, before he wrote his 95 theses and tapped them on the church there at Wittenberg that started the Protestant Reformation, the established church of that day only believed that people would obey when they were threatened with harsh consequences for rebellion. So Martin Luther, in his all-too-colorful fashion, because you know, he's a very colorful guy, he wrote and decried that as the damnable doctrine of doubt. Thank you, Martin. I like that. People are only going to obey if you threaten them with bad 
consequences. He called that the damnable doctrine of doubt. He said, oh yeah, being afraid of judgment will produce a surface level adherence, a fear-based obedience. But he said underneath that thin veneer of obedience will rush a river of fear, a river of pride, a river of self-interest, a river of self-desire. And he said the only way to develop real love for God is to have the fear removed. In other words, what are you saying, Craig? Love for God does not grow in response to threats. Love for God only grows in response to love. Your love for Him can only grow when you think of His love for you. Anything else is just a veneer. Anything else is just fear-based obedience. Love for God grows in the soil of security. In fact, what Martin Luther was doing was just quoting 1 John 4, 18. He says, perfect love casts out all fear, for fear involves torment. And then he says in verse 19, look at this. We love him. We love him. Why? Because we're commanded to? No. We love him. Why? Because Jesus is the best way to earthly blessing? No. That's what America says. That's the wrong gospel. Why do we love him? We love him because he threatens us with hell if we don't love him back? No. We love him because he first loved us. Assurance of the love of God for you is what produces the love for God in you. In other words, you will never love God. You will never have growth of the love of God in you until you are assured of the love of God for you. It won't happen. In other words, God's grace can do in your heart what the law could never do. People say, well, I need, I'm dealing with sin. I need more self-discipline. No, you don't. I'm dealing with sin. I need more rules. No, you don't. You don't need condemnation. You don't need more rules. You don't need more regulations. You need an absolute crazy, radical experience with the love and the grace and the acceptance and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and what he has provided for you. That's what you need. That's what your heart longs for. God's goodness and God's grace, Romans 2, 4, is what leads you to repentance. Listen to me, church. If you're having trouble walking with God, I don't know what it is. If it's an anger, if it's a habitual sin, if it's a habit you can't break, what you don't need is more condemnation. What you don't need is more laws. What you don't need is more self-discipline. What you need is the sweet assurance of his love. The, the example I use every time I'm dealing with someone who's loathing and self-condemnation, which is all of us, by the way. I think I've counseled everybody at some point in some way this week, including myself. The example I always go to is John 8. Remember John 8? woman caught in the act of adultery. She's sleeping with guys. She's been doing it since middle school. She craved physical touch. And what Paul saying she sees it again. Because her heart's craving something. To see what it is in a minute. The Bible says they find her. They draw her out into the public yard. And they're about, they've got rocks in their hands. And they're about to throw rocks at her. And Jesus is there. And they're trying to, they're trying to uh, trick Jesus. Catch him in a, his words. They say, Jesus. The, the law says to stone her. What should we do? And he doesn't say nothing. He just reaches down in the rocks, the dirt, and he starts writing something, which I personally think he probably wrote every secret sin that they all had that no one else knew. And they saw their sin. They're like, oh, dear Jesus. Let me slip, slip right out of here. The Bible says the rocks fell through their fingers and hit the ground, which should tell us the only rock we need to be throwing in this dispensation of grace is the rock of ages. That's Jesus Christ. We throw no other rocks at anybody else other than Jesus. And the Bible says that he, they drop the rocks and they walk off, and she's sitting there with Jesus, her Savior, who she doesn't know at this point, and she looks up at him in great condemnation, in great disgust, and she says, Jesus, are you going to throw rocks at me too? And he said, Sister, look like I'm going to throw rocks. And then he says something to me so powerful. 
He says in John chapter 8, he looks at her, and he says, no one, Lord, they're not around. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What is so profound is not what he says. What is so profound is the order in which he says it. Because I always do the opposite order. I tell people, hey, if you don't sin anymore, then neither will I condemn you. But Jesus says, no, I don't condemn you, so go and sin no more. Jesus put acceptance before a change in behavior because he knew she would have no power to change her behavior until she was absolutely accepted and assured of the love of God for her. Because since middle school, she'd been going looking for the love of a father and the attention and the security of somebody who would love her regardless of her reality. And yet she was found it in the arms of men. And so Jesus said, I know you got a craving for sex, but you won't have that craving broken until the power and the assurance of my love for you changes you. That's why our parents' generation for so long, they believe you must believe like we believe, become what we want you to become, and then you can belong to us, and that is not the gospel. Young man, believe what we believe. Tuck in that shirt, wear a tie, get those jeans off in church, and then you can belong to our group. And Jesus put belonging long before believing and becoming. He accepts you. And he said, neither do I condemn you. You go and sin no more. What are you saying, Craig? What I'm saying is that God's acceptance is the power that liberates you from sin, not the reward for you having liberated yourself. Can I say that again? God's acceptance is the very power that liberates you from your cravings, not the reward for you having liberated yourself from your cravings. God's acceptance is first. Listen to me, church. Everything you do spiritually grows out of your assurance of the salvation for you. Which means if you're in the room and you're still doubting your salvation, I want to say something to you. If you don't have the assurance of salvation, your spiritual life will never take off. I want to say it a little more boldly. If you don't know that you know nothing can take you from his hand, you will sputter spiritually for the rest of your life. Everything in Christianity flows out of the assurance of God's love for you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. We don't boast in our love for him. We boast in his love for us. So does God want you to know for sure you're saved? Yes. Yes, we beat that dead horse, didn't we? No need to keep on answering, correct? So let's go to number two. So if we know God wants us to know we are saved, how can we know? Well, I want to give you two things that John identifies in this passage, both of which I'm going to introduce today, and then I'm going to come back and flesh out. He says, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Everybody say, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Listen to me, when John says you believe in the name of the Son of God, believe in the name means that you rest in the account of. Listen to me, believe in the name means you rest in the account of. Think about it this way. If you were invited by a really rich person, very wealthy person, to go this weekend for an all-expenses-paid trip to Chicago, and you had no money to pay for that, everything would be paid for. You didn't have a plane ticket. You couldn't stay at the hotel. You don't even have a high enough limit on your credit card to give the credit card to the dude who's behind the desk. It wouldn't even pass, if you know what I'm talking about. And the rich person said, I want full expenses, all expenses paid. You go. And when you went to that hotel, and you walked up in that hotel in Chicago, and you walked in there, and you looked at the bellman or the clerk, the receptionist, whatever, and you said, hey, I'm here this weekend, you would not say, hey, 
um, uh, I am my own guest, and I, I want uh, you to charge this credit card. What you would say is, no, I'm under the name of so-and-so. In other words, I rest in the account of name the person. Don't charge this room to my credit card because I'm under this rich person's name. He said, when you believe in the name of the Son of God, when it comes time for you to purchase your way into heaven, you aren't making withdrawals from your moral bank account or how good you've been to your kids or how well you've behaved this week. You are resting under the account of another person's bank account. His name happens to be Jesus Christ, and he never did anything wrong. And he purchased your righteousness and your acceptance and your forgiveness before God Almighty. In other words, when you rest on the account of Jesus... It's not your attempt at heaven by drawing upon your bank account. No, you go under his name. Hey, thank you with all due respect. I'm under the account of Jesus Christ. All expenses paid. Just put it on his tab. In fact, he's already paid for it at the cross and through his resurrection. In other words, I'm withdrawing his righteousness on account of my place. Do you see how the gospel now by very nature produces assurance? Do you see this? Because you're not dependent on how well you've done. You're not depending anymore on how much you've done to earn your way to heaven. You are resting on his finished work. You're resting on the finished work of Jesus. Listen to me. I am as sure of heaven as Jesus is. Does anybody in here doubt that Jesus is sure of heaven? In other words, that's where he's at or that's where it's promised him. But then you are as sure of heaven as Jesus is because who is your salvation? Jesus. Jesus. You say, Greg, go a little further. Well, when, when I go up to people and I ask people, Here's one of the questions I ask all the time. Are you a Christian? When everyone asks that question, I kind of frame it a little differently now. Are you a disciple? Here's what I get. Here's the number one response I get when I ask people. Are you a Christian? Here's what comes out, something like this. Well, you know, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. Going to church again, Pastor Craig. When someone says, are you a Christian, and you respond with, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. I'm going to church again. You've now told me effectively you have absolutely not one iota of what the gospel means. Because what you're saying is you think that there's a level you need to perform at to qualify for the title Christian. You do not qualify for the title Christian. The title Christian is given to you as a free gift. If you ever think you've got to do something to be a Christian, you actually are an affront to Almighty God and His work for you. Paul was perfect as it related to sin. He was sinless. So Paul didn't need to repent of his sin. Paul needed to repent of his self-righteousness. Most people I meet don't have to repent of things they do. They're already beat up for it. they got to repent of thinking that they can, in their own good behavior, merit salvation. It's self-righteousness that we repent of that makes us a believer, not sin. It's saying, I can't do it. I can't draw from my bank account. I put all of my hope on you, Jesus. I put all of my hope on you. How can we know that we're saved? Number one, you've placed your hopes for heaven entirely on Jesus. Entirely on Jesus. There's a great Old Testament example of this in Leviticus 1-4 where when every year the, the family, the male, the man, the husband, the father would bring the family together for the sacrificial lamb. And they would take the lamb and offer it to the priest. And here's what they would do. The priest would slaughter the lamb. But in Leviticus 1-4, in order for the, the guilt of the family to be transferred to the lamb, the father took his hand. Everybody take your hand and just lift it up like this. Just wave at me like this. Cool. Okay, so he would take his right hand like this. In Leviticus 1.4, right when they're slaughtering the lamb, they would, the father would take his hand and he would place it on the head of the lamb, which was signifying that all of the guilt and the shame and unforgiveness and sin of the family was transferred to 
the Lamb. And so my question is this, to be converted to Jesus Christ is to place your hand on the head of our risen Savior. It's to put your hand on Jesus' eyebrow and that produces assurance because your salvation is as sure as his finished work and faithfulness. He is your sin bearer. I've got a question for you today. Is your hand resting on Jesus' head right now? Is your right hand on the head of our Savior, is it right now? By the way, it doesn't matter what you said when you placed your hand there. It just matters that your hand's there. It doesn't matter if you prayed a magical prayer or prayed a prayer that was horrible. The question is not what you said when you put your hand on the head. It is your hand on Jesus' head right now. That's the assurance. The analogy I've used before is out of a chair. Okay? Let me talk about chair a minute. Y'all see this nice lovely chair? Every one of you in this room is in one of two relationships to the chair you're seating in, seated in. All of us have a great relationship with the chair. It's one of two relationships. can't be a three. There's no three or fourth option. It's just one of two. Here's the two options you have with the relationship with the chair that you're seated in. Either number one, you are standing in the strength of your own legs in the weight of your 174.8 pounds, according to last night, of my 174.8 pounds is on my own legs, on my own feet, on my own ankles. That's one. Or I have shifted and transferred the weight of my body onto this chair, and now the chair is upholding mine. I only have one or two options. I'm either standing in my own strength or I'm sitting on the chair. As a believer, there's only one of two options you have right now as it relates to Christ. Your relationship to Christ is one of two options. You say, Craig, what is one of those two options? You can only be in one of two relationships to the chair. You can only be in one of two relationships to Christ. You are either standing in your own authority or you are sitting in submission to Christ's authority. You are standing in your own hopes that you are going to have righteousness or you are seated in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's only one of two options you can have with Jesus. Now, by the way, does it matter if I'm not seated what I said or what kind of speech I make to the chair. Oh, great and lovely chair. I've known you since infancy. My mom and dad told me about you. Oh, great, high and lovely chair. You've got a nice polycarbonate blend. I come in and worship you. The worship team, they sing songs about you. And I lift my hands in great adoration and submission to you, great chair. And you are, oh, you look so reputable, chair. I bet you can hold not just me, but the weight of my whole sin. I bet my whole life can be in you, chair. I bet that, oh, great and lovely chair, worthy to be praised, worthy to be praised, great chair. If you don't sit in the chair. It doesn't matter what you tell the chair. It is just words. It is empty speech. Until you get off of your feet and set your tush in the chair, it does not matter. It doesn't matter what you say. Assurance of salvation is not about what you say. The point is not what you say when you're sitting down. The point is, are you sitting down? Are you seated in the chair? It is not the prayer. It is the posture that is today's message. Posture is greater than prayer. Posture is greater than prayer. On the other side, listen, what's the proof? If you think about this, how do you know, Craig? How do I know that I made the decision to trust Christ? That's the question I get. 
big time, a lot of time. How do I know? How do I know that I trusted Christ? Well, how do you know that you made the decision to sit down in the chair that you're sitting in? Is it because you think, oh, at 11.16 this morning, I got out of my car. I walked through the front doors of this church and on through the lobby. I made my entrance into the sanctuary, and I took a nice cursory glance at all the chairs. I thought that that one's great and reputable over there. It looks good. It's nice and black. I'm going to walk up to it. Oh, you look so strong and reputable. So I'm going to sit down. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a card, fill out a card. I'm going to call four friends and help me keep me accountable to make the decision to sit in this chair. I'm going to make sure that my pastor's got to call me every three weeks and just remind me that you are seated in the chair. You need all the accountability to know that. No, no. You know how you know that you're seating in the chair? Not because you remember making the decision to sit in the chair. It's because you're sitting in the chair. Well, how do I know that I'm saved, Pastor Craig? It ain't about the memory of you praying the prayer. Are you standing on your legs or is your butt in the chair? Let me say it another way. Assurance doesn't come from a past memory. Assurance comes from a present posture. Well, Craig, what if I don't remember the prayer? Who cares? Who cares if you remember the prayer when you were eight? Are you setting down right now? And if you're setting down right now, I don't care if you've ever prayed a magical prayer or not. If you trust in Jesus as your sufficiency and your righteousness, then if never before, I want to tell you with great authority, you are saved. Did you hear me? You are saved. Regardless of whether or not you ever remember the prayer or not. Why? Because assurance of salvation does not come by remembering a prayer you prayed in the past. It comes by the posture you are in the present. And the posture is one of repentance and belief in Jesus. And a lot of Christians I talk to get caught up in looking for assurance for a prayer. Particularly if you grew up in church, this is really hard for you because you don't remember the moment you did it. This is the number one thing I talk to people who grew up in church. Well, I don't remember. Am I really saved or not? Are you standing up? No, I'm seated. Oh, yeah. You're saved. Is your hand on his head? Or is your tush in the seat? You're saved. How do I know I'm saved? I placed my entire hopes for heaven in Jesus. Entirely placed it in Jesus Christ. So one way John tells us you can for sure know you've leaned into Jesus. Here's a second way, and I end. So come on, Casey. He says, verse 18. Look at verse 18. We know that we have been, any everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. <clears throat> verse 18. We know that anyone who Everyone who's been born of God, verse 18, does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him. What does that mean? You're born of God, but the one born of God is who? Born virginally of God, which is Jesus. And so if you are born of God, you don't keep on sinning. But if you do, the born of God one, that's Jesus, protects you. And the evil one does not touch who? Me, you. We give the devil so much credit as believers, don't we? He ain't got a pot to use the bathroom in. You understand this, right? Everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who's born of God protects him. What are you saying, Craig? What I'm saying is if you've been born of God, you've been given a new nature. Everybody say new nature with new desires. New desires. So you don't not sin because of you're afraid of the threats. You don't keep on sinning. Because you have new 
desires. Bear with me, Pastor. If on this carpet there was a big pile of nice warm bondage, the biggest pile you've seen, they didn't, they didn't drink the elementary sawdust that smells worse than the vomit yet. Y'all remember the elementary sawdust that they threw on that stuff? What in the world does that smell? That thing, if you hadn't thrown up yet from the other person's throw up, you're throwing up now. That sawdust will kill a man. Y'all remember what I'm talking about? That sawdust that come and throw it on the vomit? Y'all, y'all don't know what I'm talking about? Okay, good, great. Look at me like So imagine on this carpet, this rug's a whole big old pile of vomit steaming. Warm, 98 degrees. Not one person in this room would need me to say, attention dwelling place, attention dwelling place. Don't you dare come up in this altar and lick that vomit. You understand me? That is a rule of dwelling place. You do not lick other people's vomit. If it's your own vomit, you suck it up, baby. But other people's vomit, you do not lick it. We've set that in place from our foundation. In fact, if you're tempted to, I'm putting two bouncers, one on either side of the pile. And if you come up here and you try to lick that vomit, they will break your body in half. Not one person needs me to threaten them and say, don't eat the vomit unless you are a dog. And then we need to make some rules. The Bible says if you keep going back to your sin, you are a dog. And if you're a dog, we need to make some rules because they like, ooh, half-digested hot dog. Ooh, bonus. I don't have to, I don't have to, I don't have to eat a whole thing, right? You know? Listen to me. God doesn't change us by standing in front of sin and beating us if we touch it. He changes us by giving us disdain and a nasty nostril for anything that's not like Him. No one needs to stand next to sin and threaten to beat you if you touch it. That's not a believer. A believer is one who looks at what they used to touch and they are disgusted by it. Because you have a new nature have a new nature. You don't long for the things you used to long for. You don't desire the things you used to desire. We're born again from above, and when that happens, you don't love unfaithfulness anymore, husbands. You don't love love dishonesty. You don't love self-glorification. You don't love racism like you used to love racism. You don't love unfaithfulness. You don't love hatefulness like you used to. The things start to make you sick. Not because God threatens you, but because they're simply disgusting to you. They're disgusting to you. And when you start to go back towards it, which we all do, please understand, everybody in here has gone back at least to the sin that they used to do back at least once. I would, I would agree. I don't know if you can admit that you've messed up. Since you've come to Christ, have you gone back to any sins that you did before Christ? Anybody? Am I the only one? Preacher dude's the only one jacked up in the room? Okay, all right, good. So we all go back at some point, but when you do, here's the key. He protects you in sin. He renews you, church. What does that mean? That means all of us backslide, but the sign of someone who is saved is that they always come back. There's a play on words. You want to set your mind free and your heart free today? Look at the play on words. He says in verse 18, look what he says. He says, if you've been born of God, then the one who was born of God, that's Jesus, protects you. For years I've used the parable of the soils. Remember the four seeds and the four soils in Luke 8? 
And he says the word of God goes onto soil. And remember when that one, one soil, that one type of soil, the plant comes up really quickly and looks really pretty and everybody's impressed. But it don't have great roots. It don't have great roots, so when the sun comes, it bakes and dies. You remember that? I, I, I always ask people this question. <clears throat> that group, is that group Jesus referring to that the seed hits the ground, it grows really quick and it dies? Is that is Jesus referring to unsaved people or saved people? He's referring to unsaved people who for a season look like they were saved. So your assurance of salvation is not about the intensity of when you first made the decision. It's are you enduring till the end. And it's not that you don't fall. It's that you keep on coming back. And you keep coming back. And you keep coming back. sign of your salvation is that you never permanently fall away from him. Look what he says in 1 John 2, 4. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a what? Come on, is a what, church? That's a harsh word, John. Please don't hurt my feelings. If I know him and I don't keep his commandments, I'm a liar. If you say you know God and you practice sin, I don't mean struggle with sin because we all struggle with sin. What I'm saying is that you engage sin defiantly and willfully. You are a liar. If you fill up your weekend with the things that put Jesus on the cross, then walking in here on a Sunday morning, checking in with God and singing a few God songs does not deceive God into thinking that your heart belongs to him. The simple fact is you can't love God and love things that grieve God. You can't love God and be neutral towards things that God hates. You can't have a mouth that sings praise to Jesus with a life that openly crucifies Jesus. You can't. What did you do with your friends last night? I'm asking every person. Do those things show that you love God? What what are you what are your conversations like at work? Do those things show that you love God? What's hidden in the closet of your life? What are you staring at on the internet or your phone or filling your mind with? Do those things show that you love God? Listen, I know the church I pastor. I know it very well. So, so the question is, what is filling your mind? By the way, this is what explains what he means in the previous two verses. Sometimes confuse people. I want to give you a three-minute diatribe to confuse something that people really get hung up on. These are some of the hardest verses, by the way, to bring next to Jesus to. So this is the drinking from the higher fire, fire hydrant part of the sermon, so buckle up just a minute. What does he mean in verse 16? Look what he says. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not lead to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. But to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say pray for one who does that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. What in the world is John saying? Everybody say two kinds of sin. Two kinds of sin. What is it? One type of sin is every one of us stumbles with. We stumble into sin. And John says we need to pray for that person that when we see others committing that sin, God will bring them back to life. They will come back to their senses. In other words, when we fall into sin as believers, we are to be praying for, and if other believers fall into sin, stumble into sin, there's a type of sin that we are to pray for that they would come back to life. Then there's another kind of sin, or should we not say sin as an action, but you need to think of it as a sinful resolve. And what is that sinful resolve? 
it is one that represents a hardness of heart so severe that the person never comes back from it. That's called a hardness of heart. And the Bible says, John says, that that person who's a believer who gets such a hardness of heart that they don't want to repent, I tell you, don't pray for them. And he says they die. And that means one of two things. I know we don't like it, but number one, God kills that believer. Chad mentioned a, a pastor friend. He knew that God killed him. Remember a couple weeks ago he told him how he was lying to the whole congregation. God killed him, right? He took him. That does happen. That's scriptural. God can do that. Of course he can. He says, I don't pray for someone who's, who's, who's hardened their heart. Don't do that. Or it means, and they died, it means, number two, that the person's sin was showing that they were never really saved to begin with. So I get with people and they say, Craig, how do I know if I've ever committed that sin? If you're worried about it, you haven't. I felt everybody's shoulders. Because people who've committed that sin don't worry or have no desire to repent. Their heart is so hard. Which tells me if you have a desire to repent today, you better do it today because there might be a day in a few years that you don't have a desire. And John says don't pray for that person because they've already resolved to defiantly live apart from God. So if your heart feels the desire to repent, guess what you need? Today is loving kindness. Well, maybe I've sinned so much, Craig, that I've hardened my heart. As long as you want to repent, you can, friend. John 6, 37, I will in no wise cast out, Jesus said. That means if you want to repent, you can repent. People who are in hardness of heart don't want to repent. They don't want to repent. Also, quick point, I would caution you, if you're a believer, and you see another believer die prematurely, it is not wise to speculate whether the sin they committed was God killing them or not. Please don't throw that in the eulogy. Don't go to a funeral and see a believer who's died and then begin to pontificate if God killed them based off of a hardness of heart. It's not a good thing. Not wise. But he says when we're born again, we have a fundamentally different relationship with sin. We know that anyone who's born of God does not keep on sinning. Why? Because God brings you back. I end with one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Proverbs 24, 16. Look what the scripture says. It said, a righteous man falls seven times. Everybody say seven times. Y'all, seven's the number of what in the Bible? Completion. You know what this is saying? All this dude ever does is fall. He is a completed faller. He is fulfilled falling. That's what the Bible's saying. Now listen, if you're at the mall, Andy, and you're walking behind a dude, and he falls one time, you snicker and you laugh. Or at least I do. Maybe you're so holy that God so transformatively changed your heart by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ that you pray for the person upon God. I don't. I laugh. As long as they're not hurt, I really laugh. You're falling behind somebody and they fall, especially down the stairs, and then they try to walk it off, you know? You, you fall somebody, they fall once, you laugh. You, they fall twice, you Twitter that thing. They fall three times, YouTube. Fall four times, you're like, oh, dear God, there must be something wrong with them. Are they handicapped? They fall five times, you're like, dear God, get it off of YouTube. I didn't know they were so messed up. Get it off of Facebook. You feel bad. They fall six times, you're like, dude, what in the world is wrong with this dude? Is he drunk? Somebody falls seven times, you're like, you feel bad. And he said, righteous men fall seven times. That means righteous people fall so much, they effectively can't even walk. So your righteousness is not proved by you never falling. It's proved by what do 
do you do when you fall? Do you get back up again? Do you get back up again? And if you do, your understanding of the gospel is not shown by never falling. It's by shown by what do you do when you fall? A righteous, a righteous people in here falls seven times, folks. That means our whole lives. We look like handicapped people walking through life. And that's exactly what the scripture says. Every time we fall, we get back up again. How do you know that you're assured of salvation? What do you do when you fall? What do you do when you fall? How can you know you're a sinner? Because God will know you're sinless. Why? Because you're his beloved child. Because you've replaced your entire hopes for heaven on Jesus. And you have a new nature. Folks, that's the only four little parts of John's great little five chapters. Task for you. Read 1 John through October. Read it. My mentoring group a few years ago, I had to read 1 John every day, all five chapters for 30 days. When you read the same book of the Bible, all of the book of the Bible, which you can do, you can do it in 20 minutes, 30, 31 times, you start transforming very quickly. And now the text comes alive to you in a brand new way. So I challenge you. I don't know what your Bible study is right now, but read First John over the next few weeks. And please, find ways to reach out to people who are unnecessarily troubled. And get them here. And reach out to people who are unjustifiably comforted. And get them here. Let God speak to them. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.